Hi, I'm Derek Jensen. This is Resistance Radio on the Progressive Radio Network. My guest today is George Werthner. He's a former ecological projects director for the Foundation for Deep Ecology. Currently, he's the executive director of Public Lands Media. He's an ecologist and wildlands activist. He's published 38 books on environmental issues and natural history, including such environmentally focused books as Welfare Ranching, Wildfire, Thrillcraft, Energy, and most recently, Protecting the Wild. So first off, thank you, as always, for your work in the world. And second, thanks for being on the program. Oh, always a pleasure, Derek. Thank you. So today, I'm, I'm not sure how to raise this. There's, There have been... Is it fair to say that there are some directives being put forward that could cause changes in how public lands are managed? Uh, yeah, exactly. Shall I summarize here? Yes, um, please. Yeah. Uh, they, uh, the federal government, uh, the land management agencies, uh, the Forest Service, the Bureau of Land Management, the Fish and Wildlife Service, and the National Park Service have been directed by the secretaries in charge in both cases, Secretary uh, uh, Deb Haglin and uh, I hope I say her name right, and um, and Thomas Vilsack, uh, who's Secretary of Agriculture. And they have directed all the federal agencies to seek co-management of federal lands with tribal interests. And I find that problematic for any number of reasons, but uh, perhaps my biggest concern is that the interests of tribal groups are not necessarily in line with the interests of the American people as a whole. And uh, and this is an aside, but an important aside is it, it often isn't in the interests of wildlife and uh, wildlands preservation. And I know that that sounds contrary to a lot of people because there's this whole assumption that tribal people are somehow, uh, you know, genetically or culturally um, inclined to be environmentally oriented, and some certainly are, uh, but not all. And uh, there are many examples where uh, the tribal interests, uh, particularly on their own reservations and lands that they control or own, um, have been towards extractive uh, industry uh, and, um, you know, mining, clear-cutting, uh, overgrazing, uh, other uh, oil and gas development, etc. And what I am afraid of is that uh, since the directive says that the, uh, these agencies must incorporate the tribal interests in management, that... Um, that that might push in some cases uh, more development and the there will be little pushback. The other part of my concern is that um, almost all the environmental groups that are out there that I know about have supported the idea of co-management of public lands by tribal interests or certainly have not opposed it. And um, and so if, for example, make a hypothetical thing, if a tribe says, well, we want more oil and gas leasing on these federal lands by our reservation, who's going to push back on that? I don't think you're going to see very many people from the left doing that. And my concern is that the, the right, which tends to be more pro-development, is not going to uh, counter that. And so what we will see, perhaps, is uh, more resource extraction on public lands. And that will, of course, be detrimental to wildlife and to 
the you know planet in general and uh and it's not to say that the federal agencies are you know from my perspective are are doing a wonderful job uh but uh at least all american citizens have a voice in how those lands are developed or not developed and what this directive does is it says that if you're of a certain dna in other words uh, a tribal individual uh, you have more voice over how the public lands are managed. And I see that as both anti-democratic uh, in terms of giving extra coverage. Uh, and the other um, authority, the other problem with it, of course, is that it's based on a simple racial determination, uh, which, you know, one could argue is a, a racist uh, uh proposal in, in that it gives gives this exclusive uh, authority based totally on DNA. And I, and I will add, too, it, though it says that these agencies must consider uh, the tribal interests, there's no qualifications. There's nothing that says, okay, you know, if you're going to talk about forests, you've got to have some sort of background in forest uh, ecology, or you're going to talk about uh, wildlife management, you should have some sort of knowledge of, of uh, wildlife ecology. Um, that is not, a, there's nothing that requires other than your DNA. And uh, to me, that's, uh, that's a recipe for trouble. So first, let's move from hypothetical to real. Can you give some examples? I mean, it, it didn't can you give some examples of, uh, of, uh, I think I know where you're going. Yes, I can. <laughs> of of indi uh, of indigenous uh, or of uh, tribal governance. That's that's really what we should talk about is tribal governments because we're not even talking about necessarily individuals. We're we're talking about the governments themselves, which are entities within you know this whole system. Anyway, tribal governments that are um pr pr promoting extractive economic activities at the cost of wild nature sure well every single tribe in the west that has oil and gas on their reservation has an oil and gas program that's just an example of uh, the uh, uh blackfeet uh tribe uh up by glacier park has leased at one time or another, most of their reservation for oil and gas exploration. Um, the Navajos in the Southwest uh, have uh, oil and gas on their reservation. And, and as an example of what I'm concerned about, um, there's a proposal to put a ban on oil and gas leasing surrounding uh, uh, Chaco Canyon National Park. And the Navajo uh, tribe has come out opposed to that ban because some of the tribal members have, you know, federal leases for oil and gas. Uh, the Ute tribe in southern Utah similarly uh, opposed a ban on federal uh, oil and gas leasing on federal lands, uh, arguing that they uh, should not have any restrictions. Um, and, um, and then, of course, up in uh, Alaska, um, the North Slope uh, borough, uh, Eskimos, uh, have always supported and continue to support oil and gas development on the Arctic coast, including in the Arctic wildlife refuge. So, and I could go on and on, that's just oil and gas. There are mining uh, proposals. 
uh, in northwest Alaska, the uh, the Eskimo people up there, uh, you know, they, they go by their names, but I'm going to use Eskimo because people, most people aren't going to know their names, <laughs> the names that they use to call themselves. So Eskimo people up there in the northwest part of Alaska uh, have a big uh, copper um, uh, mining area called the Ambler Mining District, which they hope to develop, including building a more than 200-mile-long road along the southern edge of the Brooks Range across the Gatesy Arctic National Park. Uh, another um, uh, tribal group uh, in south uh, central Alaska and in Cook Inlet has a proposed gold mine in Lake Clark National Park. And, and, and I'll just stop for a second and point out that I don't see opposition to these things coming from any of the conservation groups. Uh, they are unwilling to name the tribal uh, people as um, uh, proponents of these kinds of developments. And uh, it's and that's that's kind of my fear is that uh, that that the as especially when the agencies are being directed to take into consideration tribal interests on management on public lands, um, that could push uh, the direction in in some cases uh, towards more development. The other problem that I see um, is also it, the directive suggests that the federal agencies must incorporate uh, what is called uh, these days tra traditional ecological knowledge. And a lot of the uh, traditional ecological knowledge, you know, it's sort of like a fancy term for what in other situations we would call folklore. Uh, and, uh, and not that there aren't some probably uh, good natural history observations that people have made over the years and centuries. But um, but you could say the same thing about the Vikings or the you know Genghis Khan and uh, Japanese or any other group that's lived in any place for any amount of time. Uh, but a lot of that is based on uh, religious ideas that uh, are totally. Um, uh, you know, don't, don't have a set reality. For example, the uh, Eskimos in Canada that live in the high Arctic where there were no trees used to see driftwood and assume that trees grew on the bottom of the ocean. That was their traditional ecological knowledge. The Plains Indians thought that uh, bison came out of a hole in the ground every spring. Uh, and so they could not imagine that you could overhunt bison because they were always renewed. And so... There, there are a lot of things like that that I see as problematic if, indeed, they happen to be pushed by uh, uh, tribal interests to say that we think that our traditional ecological knowledge uh, must be um, given equal consideration to scientific uh, understanding. And, uh, you know, I have nothing against doing consulting and, uh, and, and asking for information and seeing how well it might comport with uh, with what we've observed scientifically. But the thing about science, and I'll point it out, is that it it's replicable. Uh, a lot of this other stuff is oral histories based on what somebody's grandfather or great-grandfather might have told them. And that doesn't necessarily mean that I can uh, replicate that information. And uh, so that's that's a problematic thing as well. So how is this any different than how is um, having tribal co-management uh, really any different 
than what is currently happening. And I'm, I'm going to be cynical here for a second and say basically, you know, timber industry, I mean, timber companies have written lots of timber sales and, you know, ranchers run a lot of the BLM. So what's the difference? Uh, the, the only difference is, is those are terrible things that happen already. Do we need a third situation just like that? And at least the timber companies and the ranchers are opposed by conservation groups for the most part, whereas I don't think they will oppose things that are proposed by tribal entities. And so that's a, that's the threat that's there is that the uh, uh, co-management, you know, there's there's another part of this I haven't mentioned. I have to step back. And that is uh, there there's a whole movement called the land back movement, which is to uh, try to get um, public lands, and not private, by the way, just public lands like national parks, uh, basically transferred to tribal entities. Uh, and and there are, uh, if you read what some of those people who are advocates of the land back movement say, you know, strategically they see co-management as a step along the way. In other words, uh, we get first co-management, and gradually we uh, we get to have more and more say on how these lands are uh, operated. And then eventually we make the argument that they should be transferred to us. And there's plenty of people who would support that notion. And they support it on the uh, sort of what I think is a mythology that uh, is based on the assumption that because a thousand years ago or 500 years ago, whatever you want to say, uh, that wildlife was more abundant in North America, the uh, ecosystems were functioning, but they attribute that to some sort of genetic or cultural uh, attributes that uh, made people less willing to exploit the natural world, um, uh, which, by the way, was similar in Europe and in Asia and Africa as well among uh, tribal people in those areas. But uh, a lot of that was based on um, uh, the fact that they had limited technology and they had low populations. And just like you can find abundant wildlife in places in Europe, uh, you know, 5,000 years ago uh, or Asia or any place else where the population was low and technology was limited. And so it, it, it's attributed to some sort of cultural uh, or genetic trait when, in fact, it's more likely due to just a lack of technology and, and a limited population. And so what what you find is a lot of people assume that if, if say, Yellowstone National Park was turned over to uh, local tribes to run that the uh, it would be better managed than the Park Service can do. Uh, or if the, um, uh, you know, the um, Arctic Wildlife Refuge was turned over to uh, the local Eskimos who want to drill for oil, uh, that it would be better managed than, uh, than by um, uh, the, you know, the Fish and Wildlife Service. And I, the, the, the problem with that even though I have lots of uh, I, I can critique these agencies for their management is I feel like I have an equal voice and you have an equal voice. And in fact, all uh, tribal people in America have an equal voice because they're all American citizens. What I want to have is to have uh, as best as possible an equal voice in how these lands are run. And I'm first to acknowledge, like you brought up that, Certain extractive industries, whether it's ranchers or mining or oil and gas or the timber industry, all have a disproportionate influence over our public lands. But at least 
I can try to counter that uh, through, you know, public action and um, and lawsuits and so forth. And in that regard, you have a lot of environmental groups who are willing to uh, have lawsuits and who are willing to write their membership and say, you know, contact your congressman or per, or uh, and um, uh, or senator and oppose this timber sale or oppose this uh, oil and gas sale or whatever it might be. But I'm afraid that we will not see that if the same thing is proposed by any uh, tribal group because of the fear of being, you know, branded as a racist for opposing what the tribes might want to do. That's to their advantage and not necessarily to the advantage of the American people as a whole or the wildlife and wildlands that are dependent on these public lands. I actually don't care who manages land or whether it gets managed at all. I just care that it ends up healthier at the end of the day, at the end of the year, at the end of the decade. And something I don't understand is how more people don't understand that no matter who is extracting no matter who is extracting who is doing some extractive activity um it is still being extracted and that is right. harming nature i don't understand why why people don't understand that yeah and it, and it's not you know the the other part of the extraction is things like um uh, i think i've uh, mentioned this before the the colville and the spokane tribes in washington are killing wolves uh, that are listed as endangered by Washington State. And nobody is complaining about that. Nobody is, uh, no environmental groups with one or one or two exceptions I could name uh, uh, have even publicly condemned that activity. Um, and similarly, in a, a same way, you have, um, there are some that will say that the uh, fishing, commercial fishing that uh, tribes do uh, have harmed uh, salmon and steelhead recovery to a degree because they um, tend to take more more fish than um, than they're really allotted. Uh, and uh, you know, and I've watched uh, uh, tribes in in Idaho spearing Chinook salmon that just spent all their energy climbing up all the dams and everything on this. Columbia snake and salmon rivers to get to their spawning grounds and they're in, you know, a foot of water and, and, and tribal people are out there spearing them after they've made that whole way to get back. And, um, and there's really no opposition to that kind of behavior uh, expressed. And I think that that is a danger because it's exploited. People tend to exploit these things uh, to their advantage. Uh, another example has been the recent um, decision by the Secretary of Interior, uh, Hagelin, uh, to allow a road to be built across the uh, uh, Eisenbeck National Wildlife Refuge in Alaska and, um, and a land trade that trades less valuable, ecologically valuable land for uh, land within the refuge to allow the road to be constructed. And that's being constructed primarily to allow commercial fishermen to get their fish to a, to an airport for transport to market quicker. And the, um, the fact that the Secretary of Interior has aligned itself with the, uh, the native people there, the Aleuts, who are the fishermen, 
and is actually on designating wilderness. The, the refuge has, is designated wilderness, would eliminate that designation and have this land trade with no oversight from Congress. It's just simply by uh, uh, secretary's decision. And that's a dangerous thing because, um, you know, the next president or the president after that may have uh, a secretary of interior who is really aligned with exploitive interests. And, and how are we going to uh, counter that if, uh, if conservation groups aren't willing to speak out against this right now? And in fact, there are a number of other uh, native groups that have joined as friends of the court supporting the, uh, the Aleuts and, and the Secretary of Interior's decision uh, in a court case that's uh, trying to reverse it. Uh, but they see it as an opportunity for themselves to do some exploitation on public, through public lands uh, that would otherwise um, uh, maybe not be allowed because there's designated wilderness or it's a national park or whatever that gets in the way of their development schemes. So this is a real danger. And the danger, as I mentioned over and over again, is nobody wants to oppose these uh, decisions because, uh, well, like the Secretary of Interior is a good example. When she was being uh, nominated for the position, I've got numerous emails from all sorts of groups saying support Secretary Deb, Deb Hagland for uh, Secretary of Interior because she's part uh, Indian. And, um, and so that was the main qualification. And, um, yeah, you know, it, there have, of course, been other bad Secretary of Interiors put up in the past. But nevertheless, uh, it, most weren't uh, given that uh, uh, nomination because of their, uh, their race base and uh, basis. And uh, it, there's no other recognizable um, experience that I can see in her background that necessarily prepares her for that position. And... Um, and so it's it's problematic. That's all I'm saying is that this could really be explained. I hope I'm wrong. You know, I have friends of mine who say I'm worried about something that isn't going to happen, and uh, and this is making a whole lot of uh, hay about something that's really not going to go anywhere in a big way. Uh, and maybe they're right, but um, I, I just fear that this could get this ball could get rolling and it'll be hard to put as they say the genie back in the bottle once the genie is out well i think part of the problem is that the uh sort of zeitgeist all across the country right now is that um i mean the the, the identity politics has has so overtaken uh public consciousness that um that uh, unless you're John McWhorter, you know, you're not allowed to um, express any concerns whatsoever about BLM or right. there's, and so there's this, and, you know, it's the, you, you, you raise, I think, really important issues of, of, I mean, what is one of the things that it sounds to me like you're saying is that one of the problems is not so much even the idea uh, well, there is the problem of the, the co-management of public lands, you know, but there's also the larger problem of um, of environmentalists perhaps being unwilling to oppose something that they would otherwise oppose for fear of being seen as racist simply for attempting to protect wild nature. Yep, exactly my fear. 
And, you know, the order says that the uh, the, the departments will engage tr Indian tribes in uh, all decision-making and ensure that the tribes can shape the direction of management. Why, you know, my, my question is, why does a tribal member get more authority over public lands than I do or somebody else? Uh, I, you know... I don't have, there's no executive order saying, you know, you've got to consider my, uh, you know, opinion to shape the direction of public lands other than as a, you know, an individual citizen. So, um, again, um, uh, what I've seen is when there's a, and this is an important point, what I have seen over and over again is follow the, the money when there's no possible for, uh, possibility for, financial rewards, uh, many tribal people will do uh, and, and, and advocate for environmental protection. But where there's a chance, so for example, like oil drilling in the Arctic wildlife, where there's a chance for financial gain, then the decisions are not as clear cut in favor of protecting the land. And it's often in favor of protecting the tribal interests and financial reward. And so, uh, you know, you have to look carefully at a case by case basis. And I have, you know, many friends of mine who say, well, I look at the uh, tribes in the Midwest supported uh, having wolves, you know, uh, restored under the Endangered Species Act as a protection for them. But, uh, you know, the Spokane and the and the Colville tribes in Washington uh, certainly haven't been following that same directive uh and uh the uh, and, the, and the reason i'm understood that they want to shoot wolves because they want to shoot elk and they see the wolves as competitors uh you know by killing elk so that's no different than the rednecks in idaho who want to kill wolves uh for the same reason and yet uh, many groups will condemn the uh, rednecks in idaho for trapping and killing wolves but nobody mentions the uh the tribes killing of the of the wolves and you know the, the 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 problem i see is that uh you have to look at these things each individually and see whether there's an opportunity for financial or in some cases political uh expanding political power um over uh over lands which ultimately could be uh result in a you know a privatization of those lands, the transfer to tribes. We had the transfer of the bison range in Montana about a year ago, for example. That was land that was purchased twice by the taxpayers of this country. And um, and then it was turned over to the uh, Salish Kootenai tribe to uh, operate. And, you know, it's not that much land, 18,000 acres, but it's, it's the beginning. And, uh, you know, I, I, I guess I'm the kindness sees as the camel's nose under the tent and and uh, we may see a lot more of this kind of thing in the future so i'm friends with a local uh, uh biologist fisheries biologist who works for the local forest service and i have been really impressed with the management of the local forest of the local national forest um, where they're doing things that they should do, like removing old mining roads, doing all sorts of great stuff. And yes. the reason that they are 
that this that this particular national forest is so well managed is very simple, which is there is no timber harvest um, on this national forest. And so there's no extraction plan. So <clears throat> my point is that the same thing that I've been trying to make over and over again, which is, if you, and sort of the point you were just making too, which is there is no financial interest for this national for this particular national forest to lie and cheat the American public by cutting trees and selling them cheap to a timber company because they don't have a timber sale program. They simply don't have an extraction right. program, and without the extraction right. program, they can actually quote, manage, end quote, the land and, you know, try to fix old problems and, and actually do some decent stuff. And I guarantee that if they brought in a timber management program, everything would, would go to pieces very quickly. Right. No, I, I think, uh, you know, no matter who it is, uh, if there's a financial reward in it, um, that uh, distorts decision-making, which, of course, is one reason why I tend to like national parks more than BLM or forest service management, uh, because for the most part, except for perhaps industrial tourism, uh, the, uh, there's less, um, pressure from extractive industry to, uh, that will affect the management of national parks. And, uh, so, uh, you know, that, that's a good example. We can see how our national parks are managed for the most part. Um, which tend to put, uh, you know, I know it's not 100%, but tend to put ecological integrity and, and ecological function as the primary uh, management goal, uh, which often means a hands-off approach in a lot of cases as well. Um, and uh, that is different than what we see on Forest Service land or Bureau of Land Management land and, and even Fish and Wildlife Service land. I think a lot of people would be surprised to see how intensely managed some wildlife refuges are in terms of, of uh, you know, creating ponds and and uh, having irrigated fields and uh, uh, growing uh, grains on these refuges and so forth. So, there, you know, and of course there's hunting and fishing allowed too on fish and wildlife refuges, which a lot of people don't know is happening either. So, so I, w I want to be <clears throat> explicit about something. I, 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 I think that you and I are in agreement on the thing I'm going to say next, which is I think that, and this is the, the fear you keep expressing, that the, the, there will be some people who will read this, uh, who will listen to this and go, oh, this is anti-Indian. But the point both of us, I believe, are making is, oh, we are anti-extractive industry, and we recognize that extractive industries, no matter who does them, uh, destroy wild nature. Exactly. That is exactly the encapsulation of my concern. So there's one more. Another thing, I, I, I don't remember if it was you who said this or if this was another ecologist, it, but I'm going to say it anyway because it, I, I think it, it's, a, 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 it's well put that these days a lot of right-wingers want for the timber industry or the mining industry or the ranching industry to manage public lands and these days, a lot of left-wingers want uh, Indians to manage public lands. And the truth is, in both cases, they're wanting the land to be managed for extraction. Was it you who said that, or was yeah, it somebody I, else? No, I think uh, uh, we I, I certainly have said that in the past. And, uh, 
and I think that's that's a good encapsulation. And and uh, again, to reiterate that the conservation community has pushed back on when it's you know the timber industry or something like that. But there's they're they're missing an action if it's being proposed by uh, tribal groups. And uh, in fact, sometimes it's even endorsed as you know sort of. There's this whole thing about uh, feeling like the injustices that were uh, perpetuated upon tribal people in the past justifies, uh, you know, a, a different a different uh, way to evaluate uh, behavior today. In other words, to uh, allow things to be done by tribal people that would not be uh, acceptable for any other group because of the past. Um, you know, ways that tribal people were treated poorly and, and, uh, and, 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 in the past and still to a degree, in fact, uh, in, in many instances. So, you know, but that the, the problem is to my mind is, you know, if you turn this, you know, there is a lot of poverty and, and, and a lot of lack of opportunity and, and lack of educational opportunities and, and, uh, issues with health on, 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 among tribal people, but you know, turning over the management of a national forest or a national park to tribal groups doesn't do anything, in my view, to correct those problems. And uh, it, in other words, it's the wrong focus to treat, uh, you know, genuine uh, social uh, concerns that uh, a lot of people are facing and on reservations and off of reservations. So. Uh, it, you have to ask us, is giving a tribal people, for example, uh, transferring Yellowstone Park to you know, some of the local tribes there, does that really do anything for all these other issues that uh, they're having to face? So a couple of things. One of them is, I don't know if you know the answer to this, but when, when the Utes are um, having the oil and gas exploration on the, the land in Utah, um, mm -hmm. is that is the actual gas and oil exploration being done by Conoco, ExxonMobil, BP? Uh, yes. Okay. So so the point it, is, it, it, some, although I should take that back, you know, like the you you actually picked up one of the examples that isn't true necessarily. The Utes have their own oil company too. Okay. So in mm -hmm. other okay, well, that, that, I'm glad you made that that. That distinction. In some cases, though, what this would mean is that the real winners of this are going to be BP, ExxonMobil, Rio Tinto, oh, yeah. because the exactly. the lease will be put out, and it'll just be yet another transnational corporation. That yes, and uh, yes, exactly. And in fact, that's one of the sleight of hands that the conservation community does because they don't want to directly condemn. Uh, the tribal interests that are doing this. So, for example, uh, you know, I, I just can't think of, a, of, of the names right now, but uh, the, the gold mine that uh, I said is happening in, uh, in Lake Clark National Park, it, it, the, the, the Native people have hired a mining company to do the exploration. And so if you get any notification about that mine, which I haven't, but if, if one were it would usually be presented that, you know, such and such mining company wants to mine in a national park without uh, disclosing that the mining company had been hired by the local tribal interests. 
Right. So, so another so another yeah. another yeah. another another difficulty or the same difficulty I have with all of this is that I completely agree with you that the uh historical and current injustices need to be rectified. I I, I am am adamant in my belief that that they need to be rectified. But that the but in this in in this scenario, who ends up actually speaking for cutthroat trout? And who ends up speaking somebody this is one of my problems with larger identity politics is that identity politics of all sorts can never help wild nature because identity politics is about advocating for your group. And th that's absolutely necessary and it's useful. It's so important for, um, for, for families of, of migrant workers to advocate for improved conditions for migrant workers. And it's absolutely important for for members of for for youths to advocate for the well being of their individual and collective community their their individuals and the community. There's absolutely but but the problem is that salmon never get any vote in any of this. And this is one of my one of the things that's I mean I don't really want to go into this too far, but this is one of the problems. This is one of the transformations that helped to destroy Earth First. At one point, Earth First was actually about Earth First, and <laughs> and that right. has has long been by the by by the boards, and that's um, and when you start advocating, and okay, again, you know, I have a a disabling disease. I have Crohn's disease. I've got other diseases and I'm all for disability rights, but here's the problem. Sorry, I'm taking so long, but, but it ends up that environmentalists have to advocate for social justice as well, or we're considered horrible. We have to advocate for the rights of, of, for, for disability rights, for example. And if we don't, then we're terrible, but you would never in a million years go into a group of an, a group that is specifically set to advocate for the rights of people who are disabled and say, you need to care about coho salmon. You'd get laughed out of there in two seconds. And my point here is that no matter what happens anywhere within this larger capitalist industrialist exploitive system, nature always loses. That's my whole point. Yes. And I think that it's naive to think that um, that given that almost all tribal people are embedded within the global economy, for better or for worse, uh, there is uh, to expect them to behave any differently. In other words, the, the pressures upon anybody today is you know, to look out for your economic self-interest and, and the, um, well, if the you don't, more... you can't pay the rent. Right, exactly. And again, because, uh, many of people in these, uh, uh, not all tribes, of course, but in many tribal situations, there's a, a real lack of, um, of, uh, you know, there's a lot of lack, there's a, there's a lot of poverty. 
uh, it's it's easy to see why anybody would go for that kind of choice. But, you know, it's the same sort of thing as, uh, you know, coal miners in, in West Virginia don't, wanting to oppose any kind of uh, climate uh, solutions. That, that it, you know, in other words, having a, a coal be outlawed as a source of, of energy isn't good for the coal miners. And I don't blame them for uh, trying to maintain that as long as possible. On the other hand, from in terms of what's good for the planet and for the country as a whole, we should be trying to uh, get away from burning coal. So, uh, you know, it's the same thing I would say that, yes, there's poverty, but is, is, there, is there a better way to, to deal with it than just simply allowing, you know, another group to have exploitation of the natural world, of uh, particularly the public lands, which is part of our our heritage and international heritage for uh, the the world. Our public lands are some places are are the places where a lot of species have their last chance to survive, and they uh, they really don't have other places to go. So uh, I would put them uh, give them a premium, uh, uh, you know, opportunity. In other words, I think our public lands should be managed solely for for biodiversity and ecological function and um and 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 that extraction unless it's something of a very unique nature can't be found anyplace else uh should occur on non-federal lands and uh, the federal lands to the degree we can should be um set aside for biodiversity and 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 climate uh, uh carbon storage and uh for uh, ecological function. And even with that, it's not going to probably be enough, but at least give, um, I think, uh, you know, a chance that some wildlife will survive where they wouldn't survive it otherwise. And I don't, I don't really see how anyone who would claim to be biocentric could disagree with that or, or eco. Well, I have, yeah, or ecocentric. Right. So we're we have just a couple minutes left, and um, are there any? Uh, how, how? I mean, part one of the things that annoys me about this is that there is so much money available within the whole. Uh, capitalist system that is just wasted and if it seems and I know that this is I'm going to back up a little bit something that really struck me was back in gosh the 19 oh gosh late early 70s mid 70s I read something about how much money was spent to kill every person Every person who was killed in the Vietnam War, every Vietnamese person who was killed in the Vietnam in the Vietnamese in, in the war in Vietnam, was it cost like five hundred thousand dollars in terms of that's how much the military expenditures were, you know, per capita of of killing, and it struck me even as a twelve or thirteen year old that we we should have just handed them the money and said be our friend. Yeah, right. And, and so my point is that. We're not talking. Okay, you and I would have. Oh, here's a great idea. Why don't we turn over? And I'm not making a joke, really. It's kind of a joke, but not really. Why don't we turn over all golf courses to 
return them to native peoples. And why don't we turn all shopping malls and all um, stadiums, like retract with retractable stadium roofs? My point is, there is so much money out there, but why is it? It's the same as when they talk about putting in solar here or there. It's like parking lots, dude. You know, And I'm not a fan of solar for any number of reasons, but if you're going to put a solar farm somewhere, put it over a parking lot. Don't put it in pristine desert. Right, and right, exactly. So it's the same thing here. Yes, these problems need to be addressed, but don't make it at the cost of wild nature yet again. You give them, would you agree, would you have a problem with, with all of a sudden all golf courses being grabbed and given back to native peoples? And I'm not really making a joke. What I'm saying is taking all this stuff that is not ecologically as important. Oh, yeah, and you know, one of the reasons I'm making this comment is because I've had this interview with this guy a couple times um about how in uh, Massachusetts and around the, the East, they are arguing to cut down trees to make early successional forest for habitat for certain birds. And that's ridiculous to cut down old forest to make young forest, when what you could do is you could just let some fields, you know, you could have the early successional forest come from what was a field or a parking lot. And so if you right. want to make habitat for those birds, you take it from destroyed habitat, not good habitat. So my right. I'm I'm just rambling. You you please salvage something from what I just said. Well, you know, I've I've heard along similar lines of what you're suggesting except uh, actually I think a, rather than specifying something like golf courses just saying uh, if there is a, an indeed a, an argument for reparations uh, of some sort, uh, that should the best way to do that would just simply give tribal people funds, and they can you know they can buy a golf course if they want, or they can buy whatever private land you know that suits their purposes. Uh, and if it's you know they want to buy private land and clear cut it all, well then they go ahead and do that. Of course, I would hope that environmental groups would still oppose it but uh uh the the point being is uh this is a you know some people are justifying this transfer of public lands uh which is the really the it's public lands are to me one of the most democratic institutions we have in america because anybody can go there i mean you know you're not excluded based on right race or, or religion or or wealth or anything um that they're available to the entire population, uh, uh, you know, of a human population to um, to enjoy. And at the same time, it is also the last place for all this wildlife in many cases. So uh, I, to see them being uh, redistributed um, to essentially privatize them uh, is to me something that I, you know, just strongly oppose for that reason. Well, thank you for that. Um, is there anything else you want to say on this before we go? Uh, I guess not. Just that, uh, you know, you're not hearing about this stuff from environmental groups. Uh, I have not heard of one group uh, oppose co-management, and many of them are actually advocating it. Uh, and I think there hasn't been enough discussion. This this directive came from the Secretary of Interior and Secretary of Agriculture, it's it hasn't been you know discussed in Congress. Uh, it is not. Uh, it's a major policy shift, without any kind of uh, 
public discussion of what are the implications of this and how will this affect um, public lands and their function in the long run. And that's the danger. You know, maybe, maybe, maybe there needs to be an organization that, I don't know, puts the earth first or something. <laughs> yeah, well, there used to be, but they kind of faded. <laughs> yeah. Well, anyway, yeah. Thank, thank you so much okay. for your work in the world. And I would like to thank listeners for listening. My guest today has been George Werthner. This is Derek Jensen for Resistance Radio on the Progressive Radio Network.